power. On the podcast, Destiny and Perspective share a cigar and whiskey at the Longview Bar after short-sightedness gets in an inauspicious fender bender with tomfoolery. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk to Charles E. Gannon about his new novel set in the Black Tide Rising universe. It's called At the End of the Journey. In this one, six mismatched teenagers out at sea must seek others who were fortunate enough or tough enough to have made it through the zombie apocalypse and try to stave off the complete collapse of civilization. This is Chuck Gannon playing in John Ringo's sandbox, and it's really interesting good stuff. Chuck will tell us all about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, the March Tim Powers Modern Fantasy ebook sale continues. March discounts on ebooks from the weird and wonderful mind of multiple World Fantasy Award winner Tim Powers. $2 off of the ebook of Force Perspectives and $1 off of ebooks Alternate Routes, Earthquake Weather, Expiration Date, and Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers. Ebook discounts apply at all Bain ebook distribution outlets, including Amazon. Sale ends March 31st, 2021, when the clocks strike midnight. Hey, the March mass market paperbacks are now at booksellers everywhere. First, there's Force Perspectives by Tim Powers. Federal agents Sebastian Vickery and Ingrid Castine both are sensitive to ghosts that haunt modern Los Angeles. They may be old hands at dealing with the spirit world of LA, but they have never been in a pursuit so deadly and with the stakes so high. Also out is The Eleventh Gate by Nancy Kress. When war breaks out between the city-states of the Eight World Alliance, the key to victory and peace lies with two unlikely allies. And out in March's Ship of Destiny by Frank Chadwick. When a mysterious alien probe materializes from jump space and remotely reprograms USS Cameron Bay's star drive, Naval Reserve Officer Sam Bitka and his crew begin an involuntary voyage that takes them 3,000 light years out of known space and into the heart of a mystery. Ship of Destiny by Frank Chadwick, The Eleventh Gate by Nancy Kress, and Force Perspectives by Tim Powers are now available at booksellers everywhere. Well, welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hey, Chuck. Hi, how are you doing, Tony? Pretty good today. Charles E. Gannon is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning Nebula-nominated Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, Raising Cain. Um, what are the other two books in the series? Cain's Mutiny and Mark of Cain, and now uh, through uh, Beyond Terror Press, um, the Murphy's Lawless series. Which is set in the world of, of 
Exactly so. And and we'll braid with it very soon. Very cool. Uh, he is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Papal State, 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Uh, what was we just did in a Cantrell book? What was you got you got another can you before that you got Vatican Sanction mm-hmm. and and most recently uh the sequel, if you will, to Commander Cantrell in the West Indies was 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Which we talked about back in uh, December, I think. Yeah. Um, co-author with Steve White of Starfire series entries Extremist, Imperative and Oblivion. Um, Chuck is also the author of multiple short stories. Um member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. A former professor, Chuck lives near Annapolis, Maryland with his wife and children. Um, so out now at booksellers everywhere is this, this, this is at the end of the journey. Here's the 3d version. Yes. <laughs> so, um, this is a sequel to um, to At the End of the World, and both of these are Ring of Fire novels. That no, they're are, not. Not Ring of Fire. No, I'm sorry. Not Ring of Fire. <laughs> they are Black Tide Rising novels. There you go. Excuse me. Set in the. I was about to say Ringo, so yeah. maybe that was the thing. Ringo, Ring of Fire. There we go. Ringo of uh, Fire, as it were. Yeah, Ringo of Fire <laughs> novels. They are uh, Black Tide Rising novels, which is John Ringo's um, zombie uh science-based zombie um, universe that um, that several authors have played in. And Chuck has done a wonderful job with um, At the End of the World, the first one. And the second one is an excellent follow-up as well. Um, and it's really cool that um, this is told from the point of view of young people. Um, well, they're, I, I, they're adults, but I, they've become adults over the course right alvaro by this point is like 18 or 19 isn't he or is he about 18 he really the amount of time that goes between the two books the first one starts he's relating uh events that go on in may uh right before the beginning of the plague and the last book i think the last sequence in it ends sometime in january the maybe thing, february but i think yeah. so so he hasn't even he might be he, he might have turned the clock on yeah. 19 but they don't maybe. celebrate birthdays while they're fighting zombies and trying to survive yeah i guess maybe they do um i think that's actually mentioned in the book that birthdays sort of go by the wayside mm-hmm. they're um the cool th- the other cool thing about this book and i it it may be uh unique in in the in the uh, black tide rising uh canon is that it's first person uh journal entry which is really cool it's told from you know alvaro tells it um, mostly. So, mostly mostly so and it, sometimes people help him with his captain's journal <laughs> uh that that happens yes uh it happens a little bit in the first book in in the first one uh where willow has to take over briefly because he's been wounded but in the second one, there's actually a, a sort of uh, an operational split. And one half of the story is being told by Alvaro into a, into a recording. And the other half, the same way by Willow. And so you get a, it gives me the opportunity and the mechanism to essentially cross cut between two action scenarios and scenes, which is a, um, my, I, I confess my background in film and my love of that device. Yeah, 
And it's also cool that uh, that when necessary, we can get in somebody else's head for a while and, and see things mm -hmm. from their yeah. perspective as well. So, so that's cool. And the reason that I said Captain's Journal is because this is a ship-based um, kind of adventure. Um, can you set it up and tell us what happened before and where we are at the start of at the end of the journey? Uh, very briefly, uh, Alvaro and a bunch of other kids uh, get one of the last available sort of, uh, you know, cruise to adventure, in this case, cruise to discovery, sort of uh, sort of ships out of uh, San Diego. And uh, it's, it's the, the, because it's the last one and everybody and all the others were reserved, they get the least desirable uh, destination of all, uh, that it was going to go down to the Falklands and uh, ultimately over to South Georgia Island, which are bitterly cold. And they would be going actually in the wintertime because although it was May, it's the other equator. So you're not heading into summer, you're heading into winter. Um, and so that's the setup. And in the course of their journey, that's when they realize, uh, and they don't know at first, the captain of the ship does, but it's a, because it's a sail ship, it's a sailboat, it's a 70 foot pilot house catch. And uh, he's got the radio under control and they're learning how to sail. But before long, he realizes, but they don't realize that he's training them for long-term survival. He's training them to learn how to use the ship. He's getting them familiarized with navigation. He's, he's trying to encourage them to think, uh, to grow up really quickly because they're living in a world, they don't know it yet, where that's going to be the difference between life and death. So they get to South Georgia Island ultimately, uh, and uh, they, they don't exactly get the kind of welcome or cooperation they want there from the uh, sub-Antarctic station at King Edward Point. Um, all of this, by the way, very deeply researched and not merely researched to today. I made sure that my research ended at 2012 so that, so that you didn't have any of that bleed over. And that actually became very important in this second book, uh, even more so. But the long and the short of it is uh, Argentinian and more broadly, probably South American, Central American ne'er-do-wells uh, show up uh, at South Georgia Island because they've heard radio signals from there. And uh, they have to, uh, that is where, at, towards the end of the book really is where our, um, well, not towards the midpoint of, of the book, I would say, is where you, you finally get the, um, uh, they, they finally see the zombies. Uh, they finally see the infected and realize what the heck has gone on in the world and how bad this is. And uh, they have to leave some of their own number behind who may have been contaminated. They cannot tell uh, because they boarded the ship. Some of them boarded the ship before it was understood and because the captain of their ship had been wounded and didn't have complete control of the situation. Uh, so they have, be, they have lost, they, they, they lost a person to suicide earlier. Well, not suicide, actually. She tried to commit suicide, but they lost two other people to the pirates, and now they've had to leave two behind. So of, the, uh, of that initial uh, group of, I want to say, uh, nine, they only have five left. And that they go on, they, they, they sail over to close to the African course, catch from what's called the subantarctic current, uh, the Benguela current, which takes them up and over ultimately to um, St. Helena, which is uh, a, a really interesting sort of loaf of rock that rises out of the water. And they manage to get some supplies there and carry on to Ascension Island. Ascension Island is where I would say probably the, the sort of the grittiest and the, 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 center of the, the, the center of the action of the second part of the book really takes place. 
in the first book. And um, that is uh, where they sort of learn how to, what, what it's gonna take to fight these zombies and, and, uh, and how many assumptions, if you were watching television, you'd get wrong. And even because they, because in Ascension Island, they find um, there's an American base uh, co uh, cooperated with the, the Brits um, they're uh, ba basically both intelligence, uh, radio intercept, uh, GPS, and uh, an airbase. And they get there and they get all these, they not only get a number of new weapons and, and a bunch of ammunition and things like that, uh, but they get training manuals. And they start looking at the training manuals and quickly realize, you know, zombies never take cover. Zombies never give up. Zombies never hide silently in the attempt to ambush you, so much of the assumptions that go into even a military manual don't really prepare you for this. And so that's the, and the book ends with them um, uh, finding their way over across the Atlantic to uh, Fernando de Noreña, which is a, a Brazilian island uh, off, uh, off the Northeast sort of bulge of, of South America. And uh, from there, go to one of the strangest, one of, one of the most otherworldly places I think you could visit on planet Earth from everything I've read about it, which is called Rocas Atoll, which is just, just insane. I could spend a whole hour talking about Rocas Atoll, but having warned that, therefore, you can be sure I'm not doing it. And that's where, that's where everything stops. And they realize at that point, one of the last things that happened in the book, happens in the book is they get a radio contact on their frequency and it is in fact Willow. They had to leave Willow behind along with um, Johnny. Uh, and it's that call sign. And it turns out that Willow and Johnny have managed, they survived, they left uh, South Georgia Island and they went on a sort of uh, pickup route all through the various Antarctic, other Antarctic stations, which had been mostly stranded. A lot of them had been wiped out by the plague. One plague got in and then it was sort of like scorpions in a bottle. But the ones that hadn't been contacted before they got the warnings and were able to sort of, if you will, quarantine themselves um, is both information that would be useful to a broader effort. You got to remember, these folks don't know anything else that's going on in the uh, Black Tide Rising series. They don't know about the Wolf, Squ Wolf Squadron. They don't know any of that stuff. And uh, as a matter of fact, what little they hear of it, they think might be pirates. So, so they've got not people want yeah. to maintain radio silence because they the pirates are a very real threat. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so they zero the, in on you. They yeah. can triangulate on you. Yeah. And by at the end of the first book, the thing they realize that they that probably the best thing they can do, and it's necessary because they think they are pretty much the only ones who realize they're aware of it, is GPS is failing, and GPS is a huge advantage for for whether you want to rebuild the world or operate in the process of getting to that point. And they happened to have a copy, possibly the only copy of the software that was being cobbled together to create a, 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 um, a backup system, which actually I had without revealing any identities, two people deeply involved in GPS, uh, both through Space Command and let's say other, uh, other organizations. Um, and checked it with them and they ran it up and they said, it's a kind of weird idea, but it might actually work. So in, 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 uh, in trying to keep with what I would call the, you know, this, one of the reasons I was so delighted to write in this is that where else do you get hard, hard science fiction and zombies in the same book? But this is, 
this is the one you do, right down to sort of the origins of the disease, the transmission and all the rest. So in keeping with that tradition of not, not you know, pulling things out of my sleeve or, or other apertures, um, I, uh, I did the, the background research and found something that actually might work. And so their mission in the second book is to get ready to go to the only remaining uplink they think they've got, which is the Diane dish at uh, the e ESA uh, launch facility at Kuru, which is in, um, uh, uh, um, why can't I think of it, uh, Guinea? Uh, uh, God, that's so embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> it's it's the it's the old French colony, the the the, the, the next to Suriname, and I can't think of it right now. But it doesn't matter because oh, it's ESA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. This yeah, is what happens. That book was so long ago now. In my final memory. island was either. Yeah. But they, uh, no, they're not on an island. That's actually on the South African, uh, South American mainland. And uh, I should I should really know that off the top of my head. It is uh, it is it's also where uh, Devil's Island is, uh, the the famous uh, the famous uh, French penal colony. Um, but it's uh, I think it's French Guinea. It used to be called, but I don't know if that's its name anymore. But anyhow, that's where we are, and it is the mission to Kourou. And they call this whole thing pro project ephemeral uh, reflex, right? Yes, eph ephemeral reflex. Yeah, that's the sort of plan to to save the uh, gps so exactly right this because overarching people, thing pardon me sort of the overarching the desire of everybody and the stakes uh, are to try to rather than just survive which are very good stakes also is to mm -hmm. see if they can do something about this gps failure because they they do want to maybe try to bring civilization back well, they also know that just even in surviving, I mean, even if it was self-interested, think about it, you have, they do actually grow to, um, I think about uh, 14, 15, 16 people ultimately by the end. And they know that they're gonna have to visit other salvage sites and how are they gonna coordinate things? How are they gonna be able to locate each other? How are they gonna be able to, if they get trapped someplace by weather, by zombies, by the two things together, GPS is this huge, huge huge advantage to being able to say here's where we are here's where we'll be yeah. if we're not we will update you with coordinates that's the difference between life and death and they they're looking at each other and they're saying this is going to be the rest of our lives and this is if we don't preserve this tool now it's both it goes from self-preservation all the way up to global survival that's how much is on the table yeah. and as far as they know nobody else is in the game I remember the world before GPS and mm -hmm. there was, you got lost <laughs> yeah. out in the yeah. woods. <laughs> Usually without zombies chasing around, you know, that was, uh, that was one of the other things that made it a little trickier this time. And if you didn't have a Rand McNally axe, uh, Atlas, you could get just lost on the roads. You could. <laughs> yes, you could. Yeah. Of course, you wouldn't have a computer voice telling you to drive into it off a cliff. No. Either. If there's. So uh, a, a, a worthy goal, but they, before they get to it, they, they have several things to do. So Willow's ship is what the legacy the, yes. and the other ship is the Voyager. Correct. Um, which well, Alvaro is the, yeah. has become the captain of by the, um, and he's the leader of the, of the whole group. In a way, but one of the things that well, he didn't elect himself, they just looked to him. Yeah. He did a bunch of stuff. Nobody else wanted to do. And, uh, and he does have authority in terms, of, in terms of captaining the ship. That is, when they're at sea, 
and they're making those sort of choices, he is that captain. But when it comes to where they're going to go, what they're going to do, how even how they're going to do it, it is still very much, as long as they're as small as they are, it's pretty much democracy in action. I mean, it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, should we, I, I want to talk about the zombie killing and about the kids' personalities, the characters. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which one would you like to, <laughs> to respond to first? You want to go, I mean, there's Alvaro. Um, what's he like? What's his background? Well, actually, I would tend to go with the zombie killing first. I'll okay, tell you let's do the zombie killing. The reason I, because really all the characters are getting defined away from what you might consider a normal world baseline in reaction, not merely to the plague, but none of these people were going to go into the military. None of them were going to go into law enforcement. These are people who've had to become not just killers, but habitual killers mm -hmm. in order to survive. So let's get the yeah. killing out there and then I can compare them to that. How about it? That's cool. Well, the and they do have different reactions, which is which is you know some of them just can't handle it, some of them kind of like it. And so we start on the atoll with them with with some of them they're practicing, um, but it's not going to be good enough, right? That was right. the yeah. They they know that it's not good enough, and now they've got this other ship coming that's going to double their more than double their numbers, and they're starting to think saying, well, we you know we. It's great that we, because they had recently resupplied in a bunch of ways on Fernando de Noronha. They had, they'd come ashore, they'd hit two places that are that island's equivalent of hotels, um, which is not what you think of when you think of a hotel in America or even necessarily a Caribbean island. Fernando de Noronha is a really small place. Um, and in the course of that, things almost go terribly sideways for a number of reasons. And basically, our Alvaro comes away from that saying, mm -mm. so when they go to Rocas uh, Atoll, they, they, begin to, uh, they begin to do drills and, and this, that, and the other thing, and he's looking at it and he says, this still ain't gonna cut it. You know, we, we, there's, there's only so many ways to do this and we, need, we can't just be, because Rocas Atoll is really tiny, really tiny and has almost no vegetation, okay? And so, and so they go back to Fernando de Noronha, which is where they're going to, they figured they will rendezvous. That's where they tell, um, Willow to rendezvous with them. And uh, they're gonna basically attempt to do two things. First, get as, do a much more extensive salvage because they just need food. Um, and it's all, and as, as you know, Alvaro and others say, this is the easiest it's ever gonna be. It's a small island. A lot of those people are already dead. There were no pets there. There was nothing to sustain the population. I mean, the biggest stuff on the, 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 the biggest native creature on the island is, is like about the size of, of, a, of a, large, a large groundhog. And everything else, the, the pets and stuff like that would have probably been eaten up or gone. In other words, anybody who was there is only gonna be able to survive by eating each other. But it is on that that they begin to learn the truth of what they had observed on Ascension in the earlier book. The ability of the zombies to go into a, a pronounced state and long-term state of torpor is something that has, they have to begin to realize that that uncertainty zone really, really corrupts any ability to predict rigidly how many survivors there would actually be because they reanimate. Um, they're, they're, I mean, they would eventually die, but it's still within really months, weeks of them not having enough food to even maintain normal you know mm -hmm. activity levels 
So they go there uh, determined to saying, this is our, this is our training ground. It's the best train. It's the easiest job we're ever going to have. And, uh, and so that's what they start doing. And uh, they learn, a, they learn a lot about themselves in the course of that. So they have to, I mean, how do they, how do they do it? One thing they have, they have protective clothing when they can find it, like fireman coats and face mm -hmm. shields and stuff yep. like that. Yep. 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 Uh, they also use stuff from live shop, uh, the, the masks and things like that, the snorkels, because the problem is sure you can have a face shield. Um, but, it, but if you either have a flip up shield, which has all sorts of problems because those locks are generally not really steady. So a lot of them would prefer a full face mask, which is a lot better. The only problem with a full face mask is you can't breathe unless you have a snorkel and you're talking about tropical weather and you know, and, and it is, it is the equator. So now, so it doesn't really matter what season it is that much anymore. And, uh, and they're, they're hot as hell. And uh, a lot of them are going around in military armor. Uh, some of them who can't fit that, Alvaro's a really little guy. He's like maybe 5'2", five 5'1", five something like that. He's just not a very big guy. And the only thing that fights him, that, that fits him is a, is a uh, fireman's coat, like for, for somebody really small. And, uh, and a fireman's coat, for anybody who's been a, fire, a firefighter or who has them in the family or whatever, these things are, you know, they're great at a bunch of things. But keeping you cool and dry while you go through your close combat equatorial savagery that's not really what it's designed for but it is really good at keeping zombie bites out so uh so that is yes absolutely they have a lot of protective gear they have to make a lot of decisions in terms of how they work they have dogs that turn out to be very valuable for them um as they have been historically we've only gotten out of the habits of using dogs routinely for these sort of things and obviously we, we still do we have canine court and all the rest but they become really essential to the group, and um, and so this is uh, these are all the sort of preparations they make, and they like the handiness of certain of the smaller weapons. But the problem with the smaller weapons is, when you're hunting zombies, you're hunting something pretty close to bear because they don't stop. You know, they they just keep coming, and hitting the off switch seems to be extra hard because they seem to you know as as at one point Alvaro wonders is there you know, is part of whatever turned them because they kind of, it looks like they die briefly and then they come back. And when they come back, they're very different. Um, when they make that transitional sort of moment, uh, I, they don't even die, but they'll, they'll be sick and then they can turn. And when they turn, they turn into nonstop rage monsters. Uh, and, and, you know, Alvaro wonders uh, with, are, are they, you know, do they have a higher, do they have a higher saturation rate of endorphins? Do they have you know, is, is there some sort of overproduction taking place in the adrenal glands? Because, you know, as he says, we couldn't do that if we tried. And they do it without thinking, which is probably part of what makes it easier. But, it, you know, it's, it's sort of in excess. Where it falls on the human bell curve of prior normal performance is so out of whack that they're beginning to wonder if something changed. Mm -hmm. Well, you at one point you compare you you say they're like uh, something that took PCP and uh, meth at the same time and yep. and uh, and attacked you know yeah. it was filled with, I don't know like a gorilla that did that or something yep. they're very difficult kind of like that I mean, so yeah so and the other thing they do is they have a, a 
they've made a disinfectant so that they disinfect everything and there's protocols and things like that that they they've stuck to that have kept them alive um, they think they really don't know you know they don't know what kills it not because they are so separate from any of the science that was being done back on the mainland well they're, they're just yeah. They're just, yeah, they're, they're basically saying they, they get out a book, they see, you know, what are, what are NBC protocols, nuclear biological chemical, you know, from the army manuals, they see the sort of chemicals, they read some stuff about what you use if you don't have what's issued, and they say, hope so, <laughs> you know, and they just, they're doing what they can without knowing really, when, when you can't know what you need to do, you wind up having to spend a lot of time doing pretty much everything that makes sense. And that's a, that's a major part of sort of the exhaustion that they deal with. Yeah. You, at some place in the book, you, uh, you talk about the, you know, living in the wild is not easy. You're not, it's like you're working from sun up to sundown on something. Yep. So, yeah. Well, uh, so, and, and a lot of the tactics are draw them out with noise because they're attracted to it get in a place they can't get to you hopefully and and start shooting um yep. that's pretty much it and these kids have uh, they get very good with various weapons that and none most of them have not been particularly gun folks or whatever so a couple of them have but it's not uh it's not natural to them but it becomes something that's very important to them and they think about it a lot because they have to work and they have to yep be good at it i don't know how many of them become really that good with weapons but you know because that that conjures up the idea of i'm going to take people out at all sorts of ranges under all sorts of conditions mm. the entire idea with the well they become extremely competent after you've killed 400 zombies it, yeah yeah you do except for that when they kill a lot of zombies there there very often is i mean there's some aiming that goes on but but you're also looking at Zombies never engage meaning to in invasive action. They don't run a serpentine, uh, <laughs> you know, and they, and they don't hide. They don't take cover. They don't think about that at all. Um, they miss a lot. But of course, after they have been at Ascension Island, which, you know, there, zombies also don't use guns. So the bottom line was the, the, the military base there, the amount of, the, the, the amount of uh, ammunition that was present versus the amount that got used was minuscule. So they have this luxury in the, as the books change over of being able to train and they get good at certain things. What they really focus on is moving and shooting. You know, they, real, they realize early on, okay, get familiar with a weapon on a range so you know how accurate it can be under the best conditions. But that's probably not how we're gonna wind up using them when you really need to be accurate. They do. They prefer to engage from long range, but at long range, their attitude is like, well, so if we miss a couple of times, we don't really care. And they do. They're fortunately for them. Um, Chloe, who's one of the other major characters in the book, who's from Alaska, uh, grew up hunting uh, medium and large size game. So and which gets her really frustrated because when she has to shift over to pistols and little little sort of tiny uh, tiny things from her standpoint, like an M4 carbine. Uh, assault platform, if you will, is that she's not that good with them because she she's not built really just physiology she or, or physiognomy she is not the sort of person who's going to do the sort of I think at one point I say it's sort of like uh, 
uh, bob and weave, duck and cover, you know, in and out of doorways on steroids, sort of uh, sort of thing that that is going to happen when when what the worst case scenario is what they're always preparing for, which is when you when you can't hold them at range, mm -hmm. they're going to pop well, up in your face. Yeah, and there's the and there's the problem that there's so you know, like if you have a wall. Um, and you start shooting and then they start to pile up and make a ramp for the other zombies yeah. to get up and things yeah. like that, that that can happen yes it is they have they they get it they they don't manage to cover all the bases that's for sure yeah. there are unexpected things so um speaking of chloe all right so there's alvaro and chloe are together at the beginning of yep. the, their boyfriend and girlfriend. by this one yes absolutely yeah. absolutely and their relationship evolves throughout so there's that going on which mm -hmm. is kind of cool um um alvaro is he's kind of like a bundle of energy guy um but he he, he didn't he started out as being a little bit like what am i doing here in the in the first book right uh, oh yeah yeah absolutely he's coming to his own as it were so. yeah and I, I think the other thing about it is he's you know what heinlein said about the best the the best per, the the person you most want to be uh for instance a, a president is the person who actually doesn't want the job Mm -hmm. uh that's that's kind of like what alvaro never saw this uh and he's learned because he was a little guy he had to be pretty shrewd about the fact that he had to conceal the fact that he has an almost and in many cases absolutely photographic memory he just remembers what he reads and even like down to charts and tables and things like that and the fact that he actually got to be pretty good at aikido um, but you, you know, the bottom line is if you, if you wear that on your shoulder, then you're using it all the time. And eventually somebody is going to learn what your limitations are. So one of the things he also learned to do is to keep his head down and to not attract attention, invite, invite, first of all, non-notice. And if noticed, then underestimation though, that was essentially his, uh, his, his go-to strategy for getting through, um, East LA, uh, high schools that were not necessarily the safest and most warming and compassionate places uh, on the face of the planet and uh, and so these things stand him in good stead particularly when it comes to navigation he remembers what he reads and he's also he's also despite all this he's very practically minded you know yeah he's got a lot he has a lot of book learning but it's not because he's per se a bookworm he has book learning because he doesn't forget what he reads and he's smart enough to draw to draw connections between things um and he's had to he's had to live uh, you know he he not from a wealthy family uh his, his you know single mom parent um tough situation uh half african-american as well as half puerto rican and so is is you know even in the puerto rican society of new york was not particularly welcomed there that facilitated their move or you may say precipitated their move to the west coast and that has its own issues and uh, so he's used to having to he he didn't have life on the easy setting and when you're when you're a little guy like that you know in a rough and tumble environment uh, he learned to be shrewd and to and to not freak out because because freaking out means no matter how smart you are you're, you're going to have the benefit of those smarts yeah yeah the uh and chloe is um she's she is straight ahead she's all heart straight ahead um she can be subtle but that's not her first <laughs> move 
nope, not at all. So she's and and so she's sort of a, a yin to his yang in in many ways. Um, yeah, and also uh, they are as different physical types as you can imagine. She's actually a, extremely broadly built uh, for a woman. She's uh, she's pretty tough. She grew up in Alaska. She's not. She's of all of them. She's the one who's definitely not scared or unaccustomed to a uh, to a life of, uh, of of physical labor when that's what's required. She's from uh, a broken home. Uh, mother died, father alcoholic. She's uh, actually, I think, half a loot, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she, her last name, I can't recall, but it's, a, an, a, it's an authentic loot name. And um, uh, so, uh, so she's, yeah, they're very different. But the thing they have in common is probably out of the entire bunch left on their own, they would also probably be the survivors for entirely different reasons. But it's that go-to, it's that get it done attitude. And we don't have the time to sit and mope and say, woe is me and woe is the world. We've got to get out there and do something about it. And we made a couple of new characters along the way. I like uh, Taino, Ty. She was cool. Oh, yeah, Taino. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's like this Brazilian tomboy kind of. Oh, yeah. Big shoes, as they call her. Yeah. Uh, uh, very Somebody who certainly encountered a lot of... Uh, Sex, sex gender prejudice uh in uh in in her in her thwarted ambitions to become a deserving uh member of the brazilian national soccer team so um so another yeah of the new the new ones another absolute survivor which you know because of how they find her you know and i don't want to spoil things for for people there but uh she is uh, she's one of the first people added to the mix in the second book and she was a huge amount of fun to write. Uh, this is the stuff you deal with as, as, as an author trying to write a person who speaks very broken English. So you send it out and the proofreader comes back and says, no, that this, is, this isn't the right verb tense. It's like, that's intentional. <laughs> I mean that. Now, if you watch, just for, just for those of you who are playing, does the writer do the job at home? You will note that her English becomes better, and she begins using more idioms and uh, and correctly, and uh, that's quite intentional. That's quite intentional. That's cool. Um, the uh, what was the other thing about her that I liked? I like I like that um, things were th that she had come to look at life as sort of a as as a trade as a as a you give me something and i'll give you something and there's nobody doing stuff for each other and she slowly like loosens up a little on that which is cool um yeah it's not all at once that's for sure yeah yeah she's got a she's had a pretty rough background even rougher than anybody else yeah the, there's there's into there's very strong intimation of if not uh sexual assault uh that she was really close to it and yeah. i leave that open because all I can say is if you open that door, it's a, it's a door that's so important that you have to dive through it. I think to do it justice, that it mm. doesn't just become some or other plot feature. Mm. And I don't, I, yeah, it's got to shoot the gun if you're going to yeah. put it in there. And the, but the, uh, the other thing, she's very good with a machete, which is cool. Oh yes. Yeah. So we, we, we see some instances of that. Also another very fun character is Ozzy. Um, oh yeah. So <laughs> So talk a little bit about what's the uh, the island of Mustique that you create yeah. is. Um, real yeah. island. Everything's yeah. real. Yeah. And Ozzy, um, who they made. 
who they think might actually be someone. Well, his his full name, uh, his legal name now, we don't know what his real name was because you know that he wasn't born with the name Ozzy Nugent. No. <laughs> uh, but uh, that tells you a little bit about what he did as a career before the world went to hell. He was one of the world's uh, leading, if you will, packagers and impresarios for... Um, for the highest quality tribute bands you could imagine. And that's what he did. And when you think about that, there's a lot of money in it, but there's a lot of travel. And you think about everything that, are, that, are, you know, that a road company does for a rock tour. Now you're talking about it, but almost the same sort of requirements, right? But you're doing it with, with a, you know, an exponential factor less money. It's still a lot of money, but the bottom line is you're not just hopping on a, you don't always have more money to throw at a problem. So he, in the course of his existence, learned to do a lot of things. And as he said, the only reason he probably, you know, he, he never got into drugs. And as he said, the reason I was probably successful was that I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, my ego, I was always able to be a team player. And maybe that's part why I wasn't a star because you know, I could live without being, you know, the, the, the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and maybe, as he says, maybe that's what you have to do, because it's kind of crazy getting out in front of tens of thousands of people every night who've come to see you and what you're going to do live at that moment. Um, so he has, a, uh, he has a very interesting perspective. He was, as you can tell, he was a huge amount of fun to write, because he's, He's that sort of character I think that you can dismiss <clears throat> easily enough, reasonably enough early on as sort of a bit character part. But as the book goes on, you realize he's anything but. Mm -hmm. He's got some skills. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, yes, yeah, he's, yeah. he's got some skills. Yeah. Well, he's cool and he's fun. Uh, just his, uh, his, his chit chat is fun. Yep. So, and it keeps them all um from getting over in a very overly you know this is a serious time and it's a serious he, he yep. lightens things up a little bit for yes, everyone as well yes, he does. so that's cool um so, Old, by the way by far the oldest person in the group yeah probably somebody in his late 40s early 50s yeah well he seems like he's uh, i mean he's not ted nugent but in since he uh it, it seems that he has he has taken on the method uh, the method acting role in some ways because he's he's good at some of the things that that Nugent is good at so which is cool it's fun like it was and he's kind of a prepper yeah 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 oh yeah it's, like he says you fly people around that's why he knows some of his skills because you know the bottom line was he was he in that business which is true you can get left hang, hung to dry very easily and so if you want to make sure that you get to the gig and you don't default and you don't default and lose all the money you made at your last gig by making, you know, making the, the, the gig you were supposed to be at whole by paying them for, you know, not showing up, mm -hmm. you know, you start saying, well, what can I do to minimize the chance of that happening? Mm -hmm. You get into some pretty interesting skill sets as a result of that. Yeah. And uh, there's also Ning, who I liked a lot as well, yeah. because she yeah. is cold as ice and, um, and we don't know entirely her background, but she's very, she, she killed some zombies, a lot of zombies in Antarctica, which was cool. Just her recounting of it in, in that sort of way um, of, of 
like then i did this then i did that and she didn't even it, there was no boasting about it it was just like a, a cool recounting yeah yep she creeps them out <laughs> so. yes she does because they can't figure out and she's not forthcoming and as as they one of the things is she was supposedly there in almost at the and it's again another absolutely uh realistic real um uh, base in antarctica china i think it's called the great wall base uh, antarctic base and um uh, she was there supposedly in a sort of human resources role it's a base with maybe 120 people do you really need a human resources person mm. and then you consider what her clear skill set is and you start saying hmm <laughs> and they all start saying hmm yeah how, how did that human resources pencil pushing go for you you know so so there's an and she uh she's a mystery she's a mystery yeah well she's fun um so uh what else can we talk about without giving anything else away have we skipped anything that's that's important i think that's a uh i i guess it depends on uh, the seagoing the uh we're also the, asking about mystique yes so uh mystique was a lot of fun to write and a lot of fun to research uh it's where uh princess anne had a house i think and the royal the royal family the british royal family still goes there a lot i think they may still own a property there uh david bowie uh had a uh, had a um had something there a lot of you i forget all the names three or four rock stars oh um and a lot of the ones who don't own something have gone there uh probably all of the Rolling Stones have been, you know, have spent extended periods of time there, either in a rental, possibly, I think, I think one of the Rolling Stones owned a house there for a while. Um, it's a, it is, it is a, an unusual island with an unusual charter. Um, it, it really isn't part of a nation, uh, which is kind of weird. Uh, it is served, it, it is, it, it has integration with certain nations in the Caribbean, but isn't part of them and the ownership and the way it's governed. <laughs> and it's, it's bizarre because the amount of money in that place is just nuts. And yet there's like one or two restaurants outside of the, 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 the one or two hotels that are more like country clubs. Uh, it's a, it's a very, very unusual place. It's not built up. It doesn't really, it's had got one jetty that comes out of the, uh, out of the Western, the, the Western side of the Island and not a big one. I mean, if you're if you go there on a cruise uh, cruise boat, first of all, you only get there to go and look because, because it's essentially yeah. it's all private property. So uh, so it's you a, get the it's sense that like a lot of the Bond vil villains would probably have retirement <laughs> homes there if they had survived. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And what was fun about that was because it was a um, one of the things that that I had in the back of my mind at certain moments of this is the total surreality of it. Um, one of the things that I think John does so well in his book is that he hyper he 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 creates a sort of um, uh, an intensified surreality. You know, it's it's almost it, it's a it the 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 bizarre factor almost takes a kind of uh, inspiration at moments. It seems to me from certain kinds of anime, right? And I and I I just I you know even the character, for instance, of Faith. I mean, she's, she's sort of like one of these 13, 14, you know, just past tween aged 
superheroes and and is one of the is is probably the most memorable character in in those books and it is a testimony to his skill that he can bring that off and and you don't and what i wanted to do and, and somebody was very nice um uh, i think it was uh, rosenthal said um he said you did that thing where you did it you you know we want the same but different and he said and that's sort of sort of what you did and for me the surreal was more on the level of something like the, the way that you go through the movie Apocalypse Now, the moment you leave the compound, you know, back in the train where he gets the assignment, it is one increasingly more surreal experience after the other. And to me, mystique to be, to be walking among, you know, people who already were not connected to reality the way you and I think of it, uh, now are there when the world comes to an end. And you'll see sort of there's, to me, there was a, uh, uh, an almost uh, sort of, if, if you're familiar with, uh, I, I'm speaking of, of all of our listeners out there, there, there are some things written about and during the fall of the Roman Empire, like the Satyricon, which, is, which is, is known for being, you know, here's this empire that was incredibly wealthy. It's somehow more ironic and also terrifying when you see the perversity of that then fall and and the perversities that are still lived through as it's falling compared to an impoverished area because an impoverished area is a place already teetering on the edge of disaster which becomes a disaster what surprises are there right i mean it's sort of like more of the same only a lot worse but this was the entire opposite these mm -hmm. are the people who were on top of the world and when the world fell in many ways they were the least despite all their money despite all the stuff they bought they were the least prepared. They had the least ready mindset for it. And, what, and, and the tour through what they left behind, the way they went mad, was for me something that I, I knew when I started the second book, I was aiming at that. That was going to be, that was, and it is, when you think about what they discover there, who they discover there, and how that changes the way they're going to ultimately try to fix things at Kuru, it is the inflection point. Of the of the novel, it goes from how are we, we're getting ourselves ready, but how are we going to do it? To now we know how we're going to do it, but man, this now that we actually can think about it, it gets really terrifying. And of course, the second half of the book really is their day. The second half of the book all takes place in the space of about twelve hours when you get right down to it, because yeah. uh, you can't you can't sleep over at uh, in in Zombie Central. You just can't. It's not a sleepover visit. Yeah, and you have to find it out if something breaks. You got to figure right. out how to how to get out, even if your car yep. doesn't work or if this doesn't work or that. So um, yeah. there's no do -over. without giving anything away. You Absolutely don't right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you didn't have a save that you can start from. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on now, Chuck? What's going on? Anyway? What am I working on now? I am in the process of finishing um, my my a project I've been looking forward to getting to for a long time, which is uh, which is um, the uh, this broken world, which is the first novel in the I'm going to say the trilogy. Uh, the it's an epic fantasy trilogy that has some slipstream elements in it, to put it lightly. Um, it, it ain't your, it ain't your, it ain't your daddy's or your granddaddy's fantasy. That's what I'm going to tell you right now. And, uh, 
And finally, I'm getting a chance to work on it. This is the Vortex of Worlds trilogy. It has a uh, cover uh, by the same guy who did that one, wonderful Kurt Miller. Um, I was, I, I, you know, one of the things I, that I am always so grateful for with, with Bain and Tony is um, input with and a very often a collaborative process with the artist. And so we certainly did that. Tony was a big part of that as well. And uh, I am just loving yeah, writing cover. this book. It's got a picture of a dragon with hands. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Yeah. We'll that. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, and, and, and there's things on the covers, the significance of which will only become evident as we move through the trilogy. Um, I, will, I will tell anybody, because, because everybody in the world knows that if Bain has a, has a series out there that people like, trilogies can, you know, it's, it's funny how many nine book trilogies there actually can be out there. Uh, so and I'm not saying this is bound for that. I, I, I don't have that sort of uh, uh, <laughs> inflated opinion of myself, but um, it certainly it has a lot of legs. And um, the, the first book is a lot of fun to write, but also probably the most challenging because I'm really, what I'm doing is I'm writing books one and two, right on one right after the other. I'm finding that's a really good method because of how deep I dive into worlds. And so it's, uh, it's good to keep my head in the same place and yeah, get yeah. through sometimes two books. And the first book, of course, in any series, you're doing world building. And the world building in this one is tricky for a number of reasons I can't even talk about because it's not going to become obvious why they were tricky until not some of them will be immediately obvious but some of them won't become obvious until the third book. But um, suffice it to say that a lot of things in this book stand the conventions, lovingly stand the conventions of fantasy on their, on their head. Because one of the first things that the, uh, the, main, the, the protagonist, whose name is Druidane, uh, comes, to, comes to wonder about because of what an assignment he's given is, so every eight to 10 years, all these subterranean creatures that are collectively referred to as the bent come out like a horde of locusts. They come out of the mountains and they, they make all sorts of trouble and they raid farms and invade and da, 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 And then they go back. And eight or nine years later, nine to 10 years later, they come out again. And he starts because he actually comes up through having to be, he's trained to be part of what's called the Legion, but he's actually being his apprenticeship because he becomes... He's about um, nine when he's orphaned. Um, and there's a kind of funny, there's, there's one of the things that you, is you get little journal entries from him in the course of the book. One of the things, because he's, he's apprenticing in a library, actually not just a library, it's called the Archive Recondite. And, uh, and he, he's sort of uh, digging through there and he says, what is it about being an orphan and being a hero? I mean, if anybody wrote things this way, they'd never sell a book or, or, or be listened to as a storyteller. It's ridiculous. And yet here it is in history. Not that because you're an orphan, you will become some great hero of the ages, but it's remarkable how many heroes of the ages are in fact orphans or milkmaids or, or stable boys. What is it? You know. So this is, this is my way of finding a sort of realistic minute moment for a character to actually be, he's almost, he's, only we know that he's, he, he is not breaking the fourth wall, but a reader is going to hear his stuff and say, oh, this is sort of a fourth wall moment, is it? 
it's a commentary on the nature of fantasy itself yeah, yeah. but yeah. but loving and uh and he runs into more and more mysteries and all i'm going to say is what starts out as a sort of comedic component in a lot of ways becomes more serious as time goes on but then it wouldn't be one of my books if it didn't <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds great um and it is um it it's it's this broken world is the name of the novel a novel this broken world and the name of the series is the vortex of worlds or just vortex of worlds yeah mm -hmm. cool cool really looking forward to that well out now that books yeah. everywhere is right now is at the end of the journey by charles e gannon um which is a it's a wonderful little standalone in its own right it's also a sequel to at the end of the world um those characters that we started loving in that book continue on and we find out many things uh about their fates in this one as well um, chuck thanks so much for talking with us about at the end of the journey it is always a delight to be here to talk to you and to the entirety of the bain family hi everybody thanks for making this the greatest job that a guy could have because it is Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Mount Royal Palace. City of Landing, Manticore. Manticore Binary System, Star Empire of Manticore. Empress Elizabeth III looked at the men and women around the gleaming Ferran wood table and thought about the other men and women she would never see again. What was already being called the Beowulf strike was less than 18 hours old, and it was unlikely they'd know the final death toll for several days yet, probably weeks. And possibly, she told herself drearily, and most probably of all, we'll never know it. Frantic search and rescue operations were underway, although the odds of recovering more than a handful alive were minute. No one would be calling them off anytime soon, though. If anyone understood how that worked, it was a Manticoran who'd survived the Yawada strike. But one thing they did know, the Beowulf strike's confirmed death toll was already over 43 million. 43 million, including Sir Thomas Caparelli, Patricia Givens, Lucian Cortez, Anthony Langtree, Tyler Abercrombie, Francine Morier, Barton Salgado, Gabriel Cadell-Markham, Juka Longacre, Joshua Pinderswoon, Judah Yanikov, Michael Mayhew, and... Elizabeth's eyes strayed to the stone-faced woman at the far end of the table, and the cream and gray tree cat huddled on the back of her chair. 
She'd never seen Honor Alexander Harrington look that way. Never seen those dark eyes so frozen, colder than interstellar space itself. Never seen such dreadful elemental purpose, such focus. We'll be a while confirming anything, I'm afraid, Your Majesty, Charles O'Daly said somberly. The man who would almost certainly be confirmed as Barton Salgado's successor at SIS let his eyes circle the table, and his aristocratic drawl was nowhere to be heard. What we have confirmed is that the explosions were definitely internal, from devices they somehow placed aboard the habitats. And the timing was a message. It was precise to the second, five minutes between the first and the second detonations, ten between the second and the third. I suppose we're lucky they were able to get only three of the damned things into position. He seemed to settle deeper into his chair, his nostrils flaring. At the moment, though, it's a little hard to feel grateful for anything. But was it a sorely operation all the way? Elizabeth demanded. Our people at O&I are split over that, Your Majesty. Rear Admiral Joanna Saleta had been Patricia Givens' deputy at O&I for the last five years. She didn't look happy to be sitting in her chair at this table, but she met Elizabeth's gaze levelly. The majority is inclined to go along with Commander Lasseline's view that even Solis would have recognized the insanity of doing something like this. It's not a very large majority, though, given the sorts of things we've seen them do already. And the one thing we do know is that it looks an awful lot like the Sollies, at least the ones who actually planned the op, knew about both Mycroft and that someone, and with the greatest of torpedoes involved, this has alignment fingerprints all over it, would clear the way for them. We've analyzed their attack run, and it's obvious they never intended a serious strike on the Cassandra Yards. They were just occupying our attention, giving us something to focus on, so we wouldn't notice the damned invisible missiles they'd fired at Evaldi. That looks like careful coordination. They knew about Mycroft. They figured their friends could knock back the control stations. And they just miscalculated what Apollo could do, even without Mycroft, before they got clear. For that matter, if they'd started their breakaway move even 15 minutes earlier, they would have gotten away clean. That's how close it was. My people don't feel qualified to analyze the Sully's ops plans, Your Majesty, O'Daly said. Having said that, I can't argue with anything Admiral Salatas just said. I would point out, however, that even if they were deliberately and knowingly cooperating with the alignment, Commander Lasseline and Admiral Givens may very well have been right that they didn't know about the charges aboard the habitats. His face was drawn, his eyes dark. I want to blame them for it. I want to have a target, and I want to rip its heart out. But there are so many arguments against the mandarins doing something like this, something that cuts so sharply against the moral case they've been trying to build against us ever since Mesa. Maybe they didn't have a clue about the bombs. Maybe what this really is, is Mesa trying to maneuver us again. Maneuver us to do what, Charlie? Kent McCurry asked. Two of Sir Anthony Langtree's three senior deputies had died aboard Beowulf Alpha. McCurry had been left home to hold down the foreign office in their absence. Into overreacting, Countess Maidenhill said before O'Daly could reply. The Minister of Industry's voice was cold and hard, but a furnace burned in her eyes. Overreacting, William Alexander demanded. How the hell is it possible to overreact to something like this, Charlotte? The Prime Minister looked almost as dreadful as his sister-in-law, Elizabeth thought. 
Someone's just killed 43 million civilians, he continued, and none of this would have happened if not for the friggin' mandarins. Whether or not they put actual bombs aboard those habitats doesn't mean squat. If it wasn't their finger on the button, they were still damned well the ones who made all of this, all of this happen. With the most profound respect, Countess Maidenhill, I have to agree with Prime Minister Grantville, Alfredo Yu said. The Havenite who'd become a Grayson sat in the chair his protector's younger brother should have occupied, and his eyes were agates. We never brought this world to them. They brought it to us, and that makes them responsible for every single person who's died since New Tuscany. I agree with what you've just said as well, Mr. Prime Minister, O'Daly said. But like the Solly's Ops plan, I'm not in the best position to evaluate the consequences of hammering the League for this. I think we do need to remember, though, that all our intelligence to date indicates the Alignment is playing a deep game, one it's been playing for two centuries, and that they've been manipulating entire star nations, including us, for a long, long time. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we need to be as sure as we can that they aren't goading us into doing something we'll all wish like hell we hadn't done somewhere down the road. Mr. O'Daly has a point, Thomas Theismann said heavily. But there comes a time when you have to respond. Whether it's the smartest thing you could do from a carefully thought out strategic perspective or not. Elizabeth forced herself to sit back in her chair. Intellectually, she too knew O'Daly had a point and she knew how valuable someone willing to argue against the consensus of her other advisors truly was. But she didn't want him to have a point. It was the Cromartie assassination all over again on a vastly greater scale. This time, dozens of men and women who'd been not simply her most trusted advisors and allies for years, but personal friends had been wiped away, blotted out as if they'd never existed. And those personal friends put faces on all those millions of other unknown dead. They made that horrendous casualty count real in a way nothing else could have, however hard she might have tried to empathize with the survivors they'd left behind. She looked around the table again, seeing the rage in Grantful's eyes, the fury behind Alfredo Yu's stony control. Saleta looked just as angry, and so did Theismann. But it was Honor who truly frightened her, because there was no emotion at all in her expression. And Nimitz was as barricaded from Ariel and the other cats as Honor herself. What do I do now? The Empress wondered bleakly. I know exactly what the bastards are trying to do, if O'Daly's right, and this was a manipulation. They want us to carry out reprisals against the Solarian League, to punish the League, the Sol system, by doing to it exactly what the League would have done to anyone else who violated the Eridani Edict. What it has done to other people who violated it, because if we do, if we go storming into the Sol system itself, smash everything in sight, since that's almost certainly where this attack originated, what the Solis are feeling about us right now will turn infinitely uglier and set itself in Ceramicrete. They'll never forgive us if we kill millions of people in the human race's home star system, whatever justification we might offer, might actually have. It won't matter whether it takes 10 years or 30 or 100 either. Sooner or later, they will exact their revenge, just as surely as we would in their place. That's exactly what we've been trying so hard to avoid from the beginning. But Theismann's right too. We can't not respond to this. 
Unless we want the murderous bastards to do it again and again, while the friggin' mandarins go right on enabling them every step of the way. It doesn't matter, Honor Alexander Harrington said into the ringing silence. It was the first time she'd spoken, and Elizabeth could hear the ice crystals in that soprano, taste the searing rage under that frozen surface. None of it matters, Honor said. We've been patient. We've waited. We've tried to minimize the death toll, tried to be the voice of sanity. We've tried, and none of it matters one damned bit to those men and women in old Chicago. They don't care how much destruction there is. They don't care who dies. And if that's the way they want it, so be it. She looked around the conference room, and Nimitz raised his head, his ears flat, his fangs half-bared. We've always known something might change our strategic calculus. That was always part of our thinking. And now, it damned well has. I'm through taking the long view. It doesn't matter who did it. What matters is that it has to end, Elizabeth. Those icy brown eyes locked with her monarchs. It has to end now. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a balloon gondola filled with Galapagos turtles drinking ginger ale and burping their way around the world in 80 days. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon, author of At the End of the Journey. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 